0: So Holy Spirit, ask that you would please help us to understand that scripture and know how we can apply it to our lives even this week. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to welcome those of you who are watching the podcast. Great to have you with us, as well as those of you here in this room. I want to start with a question. How many of you would say that you are a control freak, that you like to be in control of situations, maybe your emotions, you don't like things messy or unpredictable? How many of you think that describes you or the person sitting next to you? Because for sure, they're the control freak, right? Now, I don't think of myself as a control freak, but, you know, if if we did a survey of the staff here and asked, you know, do you think Dudley is a control freak, I'm not sure what they would say, which is why we will never do such a thing, because I'm the boss, I won't allow it, but I don't have control issues. (laughs) Now, there are some good things that come from being in control. It's often how we succeed in school or in business, but it kills our spiritual life. In fact, I think one of the biggest reasons that we don't experience God's power and God's miracles more is because our need for control. Because when we try to control, contain, and tame God, as we sometimes do, then all we experience is a controlled, contained, tamed God. And then we start to wonder, well, if God's so real, where's his power? Where are the miracles? Why don't I feel his presence? Now that's the opposite of what's happening in the story we just read about King David who starts dancing in public because he is so filled with God's joy. He's free, he's bold, he's experiencing the power of God, and we can have all of that too, just one catch. We got to let go of control, be a little out of control, so that God can be in control. We may also need to get comfortable looking a little foolish from time to time, as David does here. Now, the background to this story is, as we have seen, David had been chosen to succeed King Saul as Israel's next king. That made Saul jealous, so he spends a lot of years trying to kill David. But eventually, Saul and uh, his sons were killed in a battle against the Philistines, and David becomes king. And he's king here. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, I just need to pause, because I I just want to ask, when you hear the phrase, Ark of the Covenant, be honest, what comes to mind Right. Indiana Jones. Now, it was more than that to them. For the Israelites, it was hugely significant. It contained the Ten Commandments, other reminders of how God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And to them, it represented the power of God and the presence of God. And David is so excited about this, he strips off his robe down to a linen cloth worn by poor people as a sign of humility. But given what David's wife says, it must also have been very revealing. Basically, strips down to his underwear, right? So there's David dancing in public in his underwear as an act of worship. Now, I know that just seems odd to us and weird, but it is really important that you understand what's going on in this scene. So I have decided to reenact it for you right now. (laughs) Oh, I think I just made my point. Right, like, this is awkward. That's why David's wife says to him how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls as any vulgar fellow would do. This verse is proof the Bible is reliable. Does that sound authentic or what? <laughs> like, you don't make that up, right? When I was a college pastor, I did a wedding for two uh, students in in, in my group and during the reception, there's this bunch of freshman women that kept trying to get me to dance with them. Now I am a terrible dancer, but they kept bugging me, so I finally gave in, so there I was, this middle-aged guy out on the dance floor, dancing with like six or seven freshman women, you know, busting out all my best moves, you know, the sprinkler, you know, know, the the middle-aged man overbite, you know, that. Oh, you've been there, yeah. (laughs) Or you're like, yeah, I've seen that move, right? When I sat back down, my wife said, it's probably best for the ministry if you don't do that again. (laughs) That's David. But he doesn't care what other people think. He is free and filled with the joy and the power of God because he is out of control so that God can be in control. In fact, that's the whole point of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. David is basically saying, the real king here, the one who's really in charge is God, not me. And the point this story makes, the point of this sermon is if we want to experience the power and the joy of God, as David does here, we have to let ourselves be a little out of control and be willing to look a little foolish. I have a friend who was a chaplain in a hospital, and one day the family asked if she would pray for their very sick mother. And as my friend prayed, the mother visibly began to improve. Color, breathing, she opened up her eyes. My friend said she didn't like it. It was uncomfortable because it was out of control. It felt she, it, it was not what she was used to. In order to experience the power of God, we have to let go of control and comfort. Otherwise, we stifle the spirit which kills our spiritual life. And you can see that in the very first part of this story, the part that we didn't read. Now, the story starts by saying that David took 3,000 men with him to go fetch the ark. 3,000, that's a lot. Basically, what David is doing here is he's forming a religious parade, sort of paraders of the, last, of the lost ark. And as they moved the ark on a cart, a man named Uzzah reached out, took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died. What? Like, what is up with that? This is one of those stories that really turned folks off about the Bible. Like, well, Uzzah, I mean, he was just trying to help keep the ark from going in the mud. Right now, if you feel that way, you are in good company. David gets mad at this too. Well, the issue here is that God had told the Israelites not to touch the ark because it represented his power, but more importantly, his holiness. And the the priests were supposed to carry it on poles, not on a cart. Now, that doesn't mean that Uzzah got zapped just for disobeying some minor little rule. That's not what's going on here. It's much deeper than that. See, this is right at the beginning of Israel's experiment with a king. And the problem with kings is they start to think that they make the rules rather than God. And right here, already, David and his men are starting to form their own rules, ignoring what God had said. And God cannot allow that to take root at the beginning of kingship. Otherwise, it will spread. It also needs to be said that from God's perspective, death is not the worst thing that can happen. Quite probably, Uzzah simply went to be with God at that point. And you also have to remember that it takes the whole Bible to reveal God's full character. And there are many passages that show God's love and mercy and grace, both in Old and New Testament. But God is also powerful and holy, and that's one of the things that this passage shows as well. We cannot tame him. We can't put him in a box. We can't control or manipulate him. And we can't approach him through our own good merits. And that seems to be Uzzah's issue See, Uzzah seems to think that he can touch God, approach God, go into God's presence based on his own goodness. But the main point of all those rules in the Old Testament is that God is holy and we are not. And holy means 100% pure, which means you cannot be 99% holy. It's all or nothing. So our sin is a big problem. And we can't just march into the presence of God based on our own goodness. We can't say, hey, I'm, I'm a parader of the lost ark. I'm good enough. I can just touch God on my own. I sat on the committee. I was leader of the youth group, right? We can't deal with our sin through our moral efforts. That's what every other religion does. Every other religion says just try harder to be good. But that's trying to control God. I'll be good and then God has to bless me. Well, who's in control? I'm in control, even of my own salvation. And when we do that, in Uzzah's case, it brought physical death, but always it brings spiritual and emotional death. Because if we think we're doing great at all those rules, you know what happens? We become smug and arrogant and self-righteous and judgmental, and our heart gets cold rather than being grateful for God's grace and mercy, which we don't deserve. And if we don't think we're doing well at those rules, we're in despair. That's what Uzzah's death symbolizes, spiritual death when we try to control. So then David and the Israelites, they see all this. They freak out. They don't want the ark. So it says that instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Oh, that's nice. Right, whoa, this thing is dangerous. Here, Obed, you take it. Right, you're a Gittite. You don't mind. Gittite just means he's a foreigner, right? But then what does God do? It says the Lord blessed Obed and his entire household. What? See, just when they think that they've got God figured out, They know what he does and what he doesn't do. He surprises them again and blesses Obed, who didn't earn it, who doesn't deserve it. He's not even an Israelite. It's pure grace. And that's the whole point. The whole point is we can't control or predict God. We have to come to God out of control, even of our own salvation. Obed didn't manipulate God's blessing. He simply received it. So David gets this. Light bulb goes off, and David gets this, so he forms a second procession to carry the ark to Jerusalem, but this time it's a little different. The text says that as they went, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And this is important, because the way that you did that was you put your hands on the animal to identify your sin with the animal, and then you killed the animal as a reminder that a price needs to be paid for your sin, but you can't pay that price. Someone else has to pay that price. So here, a thousand years before Jesus, David is seeing through a glass darkly the gospel of grace. He's believing in the function of Jesus, his need for Jesus, before he even knows the name of Jesus. And that's why he dances. Because one of the things that gives us the security to be out of control is when we realize how deeply loved by God we are, even though we don't deserve it. That in the person of Jesus, God was willing to die to reconcile us to himself. Pure grace, pure mercy, pure love. That's how we go to God. And when we get how much we're loved, we don't care what other people think about us. In fact, we stop thinking about ourselves at all. That's why after his wife chastises him, David says, it was before the Lord that I was dancing. Before the Lord who chose me to be ruler over Israel. Even though I didn't deserve it. Even though I'm not worthy, he chose me. So I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I love that line. I'll be even more undignified than this. He doesn't care what other people think. That's freedom. You know, as a person, I mean, that is one of my biggest fears. What What do other people think about me? You know, and that's a tough thing if your job is to get up in front of several thousand people every Sunday and talk. Plenty of opportunities to make a fool of yourself. And I've taken a few over the years. But to not care what others think, man, that is freedom. So how do we get there? How, practically speaking, what's our part in this? How can we move from being control freaks to letting God be in control so that we can experience God's power, God's freedom, and God's joy? A couple of things. First, as David does here, worship. Worship. Worship is when we stop thinking about ourselves and focus on God, his character, what he's done. And that can happen anywhere, not just on a Sunday morning, but, you know, but corporate worship is also important. And I don't know about you, but I don't always come into a worship service focused on God. I'm often focused on me, my needs, my problems, what's going on with me. And see, see if any of this sounds familiar. The alarm goes off on Sunday morning and you realize that it's time to go to church. If you're a parent, you wake the kids up. They're just as happy about it as you are. So then you rush out the door. And by the way, ever notice how many fights happen in the car to or from church? What, why is that, right? Like, why does that happen, right? So you get here, you search for a parking spot, either up at Bellevue Christian or way down. You finally find it way down at the end of the parking lot. You wonder if you're in a different county, right? And then as you trudge up the vast parking lot, usually in the rain, you realize that your pastor was right and that parking at Bellevue Christian and taking the shuttle really is easier, <laughs> which many of you do, which I always do in spite of the announcement video. Newly resolved to always listen to your pastor. You come in here, and now it's time to worship God. But our lives are surrounded by by the trivial, the trying, the tempting, and the tiresome. And in our culture of self, it is so easy to make worship about me. Did I hear the music I want? Did I hear the sermon I like? But worship happens when as an act of our will, we forget about ourselves and focus on God. So when you're here, focus on the words of those songs. You know the 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 songs that we do, the three or four that we do. But you know, right at the beginning, that's not the warm-up act. You know, for the sermon, that's that's what we're here to do. Focus on what those words mean. Enter into worship. When someone is up here praying, just every once in a while, in your mind, go, Yeah, Jesus, I agree with that. Eugene Peterson says that worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves. Worship. Second. Don't stifle the spirit. That's basically what David's wife does, right? He's joyfully worshiping, and she basically says, stop it, you're embarrassing me. Buzzkill, right? So often that happens. So often we feel enthusiasm about God, or we're doing something we think God wants us to do. Always someone there to criticize. Always someone there to shut us down. And we internalize that and so we stifle the nudges we get to do or say certain things. We kind of bottle up our emotions, especially in public. Don't want to let those things show in public or in worship. right? And man, we Presbyterians get a lot of kidding about this. right? You know, kind of stoic, kind of stay. you know, God's frozen chosen, you know, all of that. <laughs> in fact, the rule book is even called the book of order. Presbyterian rule book is called the book of order, not the book of joy, Not the book of zeal, the book of order. Like, What does that say, right? But listen to this definition of worship. Worship should inspire as much ardor as order. Ardor means passion. Ardor and order, guess where that comes from? The Presbyterian book of order. So if even in the Presbyterian book of order, we are instructed to have ardor, well, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, dig down deep into your soul and feel something for the Lord. (laughs) Can I have an amen? Let the music move you, as many of you do. If you want to raise your hands sometimes, you go ahead, right? Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but you are also free on occasion if you feel like it to do so. When you're watching your favorite sports team, a football or whatever, you're at a game, what do you do? You stand, you cheer, you raise your hands. That's what you do. That's what we do when we feel emotions. A woman told me that she was in church with her granddaughter and there was a man who was singing with his, hands, his hand raised. The little girl reached up and gave him a high five. <laughs> I just love that, right? Like high-fiving God. All the times that I have experienced God, whether that's been something kind of exuberant or quiet, peace in my heart, there have been times when I've been out of control in some way. Doing something that I, he nudged me to do or allowing myself to actually feel some passion. One experience I've told you about a couple of times, I was at a pastor's conference, at a worship service, feeling emotional, trying to kind of shut it down. And finally, I said, okay, Lord, I will take you on your own terms. I felt God's presence so powerfully, I ended up on the floor crying, way out of my comfort zone. But one of the things I heard God say in that moment is, I have to offend your mind to get to your heart. Stop trying to contain me. And all through the Bible, when folks let the Holy Spirit loose in their lives, they do crazy stuff. They do crazy things God nudges them to do. They start speaking in tongues or slaying in the Spirit, all of which is in the Bible. And this would be the biggest reason I do not experience God more than I do. I do not like to be out of control. I'm afraid of what other people might think about me. So I, so I bottle up the spirit, stifle the nudges I feel, contain my emotions. After I got back from that conference, I called my lifelong mentor. He's president of a seminary. I figured he could talk sense into me. And I said, am I playing with fire here, and should I stop? And he said, you are absolutely playing with fire, and you absolutely should not stop. So then I called my predecessor here, Dick Leon. Surely Dick Leon would be the voice of reason to me. And you know what he said? Dick said, you know, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, you never want to be in a posture of control. Problem is, we like to be in control. Don't stifle the Spirit. Which brings me to the next suggestion. Be willing to look foolish. Because if we respond to the nudges the Holy Spirit gives us to do or say certain things, if we allow ourselves to feel passion for Jesus, we may look foolish to other people. But we'll also experience God's power, God's joy in a bigger way. Now, how do we know if it's the Spirit nudging us or not? As I've said before, run it through Scripture. Does it agree with Scripture? Talk to other wise Christians. Keep praying about it. Keep submitting it to the Lord. And if it is of God, follow the nudge, even if it makes you look foolish. Joshua looked foolish, marching around Jericho, blowing trumpets, until the walls came down. Peter looked foolish, stepping out of the boat in the middle of a storm, but that's how you walk on water. Be willing to look foolish. Oh, trust me, it probably won't be the first time. All right. But at least this time you will be a fool for Christ. Worship, don't stifle the Spirit, be willing to look foolish, and finally, don't try to civilize God. There's a great scene in Rocky 3. Yes, I have seen Rocky 3. Yes, I am quoting Rocky 3. Where Rocky has been very successful, but he's gotten a little soft. And his manager says it's the worst thing that can happen to a fighter. You got civilized. David's wife is trying to civilize, sanitize God. It is not proper for a king to dance in public. I've told you before about a man in my former church who didn't like folks raising their hands when they sang. He'd say, that kind of emotion doesn't belong in church. What? But that's religion tries to tame God and make him comfortable to us according to our social norms. Uzzah doesn't think it is proper for the ark to fall in the mud. But here's the thing. He is more worried about God's dignity than God is. And God can handle his own dignity. And the God who, when he came himself in the person of Jesus, did not disdain to be born in a barn or die on a garbage heap, that God does not mind a muddy ark or a dancing king. But a cold heart, a cold heart, that's a problem because it's not open to his love. We experience God best when we don't try to tame, civilize, or control him. Right before I came here, the senior pastor I worked with in California retired, and he had been there for 28 years, so it was a scary time for the church, and especially for the staff. Things were going great. We didn't want anything to change, so we formed a plan. It was our plan i'd already been preaching a lot we had an executive pastor so the elders and pastors figured we didn't need a new senior pastor now it made a certain amount of sense the problem was it was our plan we were in control and it caused some organizational confusion you know like who reports to whom in fact when they we went to drop the new org chart no one could figure out where to put my little box Right? like is am i in charge was the executive pastor in charge right? Now, fortunately, the Holy Spirit didn't allow us to persist in our plan for very long, and as we prayed, we began to surrender control, and I began to realize that maybe God was doing something more than just trying to make me uncomfortable. Maybe he was doing a new thing, and a new thing could be a good thing. Plus, I had entered into conversations with the search committee here, and even though it was a long shot that I'd be hired because I didn't have any experience, I thought, well, maybe the reason we don't know what to do with my box on the org chart is I'm not going to be here much longer, So I said, hey, I tell you what, let's just put my box on the side, which we did. It was the stupidest looking org chart ever, right? Just this box, but everyone else liked it, which I tried not to take personally. (laughs) Five months later, I was here. The executive pastor of that church went on to be the senior pastor of another church and my former church got john ortberg nationally known writer great preacher he got that they got that him as their senior pastor in fact when i first got here one of you said to me didn't they replace you with john ortberg and i said yeah in a way yeah kind of sort of they said wow they really got an upgrade didn't they (laughs) thanks i feel so welcome here's the point when we when we let god be in control all of our lives including mine got bigger It would have been way more comfortable for me to stay in California. Way more comfortable. But then I wouldn't have known, so many of you, wouldn't have been a part of all the amazing things going on in this church. When I came here, I don't think I have ever been more scared in my life. I was scared to death, mostly that I would fail apocalyptically and make a fool of myself. I felt out of control, but life was bigger because of it. And I saw God bigger. So one of the pictures that hangs in my office is this one. It's taken from a video, actually, of the pastor I work for in California and me on his last Sunday in that church. And what he's saying to the congregation right there is, I'm retiring, but Scott here is going to take up the preaching, and so everything is going to be okay. Problem was, the following week, I was flying up here for my last interview to come to this church. And he knew that, but he didn't think I'd get hired because who would hire someone so inexperienced? right? So he felt perfectly free to say it. But I wasn't so sure, so that little smile I have on my face, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking I love you, but shut up. Stop it. Stop Stop talking right now. Sure enough, two weeks later, I was standing in that exact same spot telling that congregation that I was leaving. But what I discovered and what they discovered is when Jesus is in control, life gets scarier. We may even look foolish, but life gets bigger and we experience the power of God. And that picture reminds me of it every time I look at it, which is why it's in my office. I can't control God And that's good news. So where are you trying to control, contain, civilize God? What might he be nudging you to do that you don't want to because maybe it'll make you look foolish? Ask God to help you experience his great love for you that gives you the security to let him be in control so your life gets bigger. I'll close with this. I I recently read something written by a man who had been river rafting in Zimbabwe. And when the guide was giving the instructions at the beginning, he said, when the raft flips, not if, when the raft flips, he said, you'll be tempted to swim to the shallow and stagnant water near the bank of the river. But don't do it, because that's where the crocodiles are. Instead, stay in the rough water, ride the rapids until you get to a calm spot, and then climb back in the boat. It's better, and you'll have more fun. Two points to that story. First, I am never going river rafting in Zimbabwe. (laughs) Uh-uh. but on a metaphorical level stagnancy and control will kill your spirit live in the white water be a little out of control so that God can be in control it is scary but as it turns out it's actually better and you'll have a lot more fun so Jesus we are not good at this I confess I am not good at this for I know the plans I have for me Lord, I pray for every person in this room that you would help us to experience your love in a way that helps us surrender control to you so that you bring us to a place where we can say, thy will be done and mean it. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.